Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey folks, Oliver here. This week, I am very excited to bring you Job Stelman. Job is the head of product design and technology at Van Melf and responsible for bringing you some of the beautiful bikes that they produce. We talk in depth about their new bikes, the A5 and the S5 that have just been released, as well as the innovations that they have on them, but also the wider context of micromobility and design and what works. It was a total joy to be able to dig in the space a little bit more and understand the journey that the company has been on since Job started talking to founders Tarko and Tees back in 2010 as a graduate student and the journey that they have been on together. As you'll also hear here, we are discussing the upcoming Micromobility Europe conference that is happening June 1st and 2nd, 2022. We will have hundreds of attendees from hundreds of companies presenting on the cutting edge of lightweight electric vehicles, including some companies that are still in stealth, but have shown me their wheels and which I cannot wait to have on the podcast in the years to come. We will have picture coaches, product reveals, and a pitch competition from some of my favorite early stage micromobility companies that will be judged by some of the top VCs in the mobility space. In short, if you are interested and where the future of design and micromobility is going, then you should be in Amsterdam with us. So go and get your tickets. Come and enjoy. Micromobility.io. I also want to thank our sponsor for this episode, Joyride. Joyride's SaaS platform powers every point of the micromobility journey, from vehicle selection to turnkey software to extensive resources. As one of the world's first micromobility platforms, Joyride shared mobility customers span more than 200 global markets and thousands of multimodal vehicles. These micromobility operators, no matter their size, are on a fast-tracked road to profitability with Joyride's low-cost operating platform, exclusive hardware deals, and industry handholding through obstacles like insurance, RFP writing, and data compliance. And now, the Joyride team is taking their micromobility know-how on the road to host the first ever Joyride Academy experience. This one-of-a-kind hands-on workshop is made entirely for micromobility operators and will be held on June 1st as part of Micromobility Europe. They'll be covering financing, advanced operational efficiencies, data-driven insurance, and hosting a fireside chat with some of the industry's biggest players. If you're managing or thinking of managing a micromobility fleet, this is the place to be on June 1st. The best part? The Joyride Academy experience is completely free to Micromobility Europe ticket holders. So register today and head over to our blog to see how to sign up for the workshop before spaces fill up. And with that, here is Job. Let's go. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Micromobility Podcast. You are here with me, Oliver, your host, and Job Stamon, who is the Chief Product Design Officer at Van Mulf. How are you today, Job? Very good. Good. Excellent. Nice to be here. <laughs> oh, look, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. I'm really excited for this chat, mainly because we don't always necessarily dig into design so much on this podcast. We're oftentimes talking about the business and things. And But look, with the launch of the A5 and S5, I thought, you know, let's have a chat and chat about what you've been working on. 
But look, it is a pleasure to have you here. Van Mouth, one of my favorite companies in this space. So look, I thought maybe what we'll do is I'm going to get out of the way. I just love to hear your story, man. I'd love to hear where you've come from and, and kind of what you were doing before you were at Van Moff and then, you know, how you ended up there and what your journey's been so far. Yeah, thank you, Oliver. Yeah, so let, let's see where to start. So so actually, me and Van Moff go way back. I think that's around like 2010, 2011. Oh, wow. So that's when I graduated at Van Moff. So I was done with my industrial design, uh, almost done, and I did my thesis at Tizen Taco. So th that's where it all got started. No so way. I, uh, you yeah. were way back so, then. Yeah. Oh, wow. Because yeah. back then, I mean, those in, in those incredibly early days, they'd really just, there was just like the first bike, right? Or second bike at that point. Yeah, there was a first bike. So, yeah, the way we call it now, dumb bike. Yeah. So it's, it's no electronics, nothing. Very plain, simple, simple design with the lights integrated. So that was sort of the core start of the company. And it was very small back then, so just a couple of people. And I was sort of, I was looking for my graduation assignment and I always worked in a bike shop actually, and really wanted to do like a final project on that. But I was looking for something else, like something, not like a racing bike or a mountain bike, but really something else. And that's how it all got started. And uh, via friends, I met Tis and Taco, and I started to work on a problem, which was all about like design for a modular bike. Mm. And I also stayed as an industrial designer back in the days. It was about the time when also Tees went to Taiwan. So I joined Tees to Taiwan and we set up office there in Asia. Also at a point I wanted to learn sort of about the rest of the world and about what, what more is out there in terms of complexity and manufacturing technology, uh, also electronics. So I moved away, which was hard. I moved back then to Philips. So I worked for Philips. I actually did a traineeship there and we worked in multiple roles. One was more on like the innovation side, Philips. They have a really high-end like shaving manufacturing facility, so I worked there. And I worked at the business side, more in a product management role, and also Philips Design, of course. Mm. I somehow ended up there doing a lot of connected products, so yeah. everything connected to an app. And I really loved that world, right, where it was sort of two things that don't necessarily easily go together yeah like i like the complexity of it like different ways of working but uh really bring that together and in 2016 so that was right when the first or the first 2016 electrified hit the road yeah the s1 mm -hmm. and that's when i came back to the company was it always your intention did you think that you would uh, to come back yes yeah. oh yeah okay yeah. So i always kept in contact with tis and taco mm. yeah we always kept talking about bikes like it's very close to my heart so i, I can't oh, really do you, Dutch, hey? you just can't talk you just can't stop yourself <laughs> so, like when i draw something it's a bike <laughs> yeah that was that marvelous so that first e-bike did they know that they were going to go into e-bikes even back in 2010 yeah, yeah yeah back then we were already working on it on multiple directions yeah wow but yeah back then we were still sort of it, it wasn't necessarily that obvious to go in e-bikes or even like e-scooters yeah we looked really really broadly already then some some concepts for an e-bike and that's also really cool about working with Tees and Taco is that it's always very open and very creative and we can look at, at many things at the same time mm. and somehow we always end up making a bike or designing a bike but it's like every project starts starts a lot broader than that actually yeah and that's something I really like and it fits me hmm hmm 
I'm surprised to hear that, but also not surprised to hear that at all. I mean, it's amazing talking to a lot of people in micromobility, how for a lot of them, they've been around since 2010. And it was obvious to them that that was just the way the world was going to go. And that, you know, the world finally caught up with what they were thinking about in 2010, 2011, 2012. That's really cool. So you joined obviously in 2016 and they'd just done their first electric bike. My understanding, I actually tried to buy the first Electrify bike when it came out. I had been following Vinmoff for a couple of years at that point, and I got really excited, and I thought, yes, this is, this is going to be great. But I couldn't ship it to where I was living at the time, which was in the Middle East, so I kind of missed out. But sort of what was the, what, I've never ridden it, but what was that bike like? What was the first iteration of that bike, and when you came in, what was the things that you were thinking, okay, cool, this is where we need to go with this? Yeah, so when I came in, it was a bike connected to an Epi and it was sort of able to unlock your bike. But it was like when I looked at it, it, it wasn't really sort of ready for a larger audience. Also, the integration with the software wasn't really at a level that it was super easy to use. So the first sort of focus was to, of course, to sort of lift the level of integration and to, to get a lot more freedom in the design of that. We also come from an age where we didn't have that freedom, where we work with some of the partners, some of the more standard industry partners. So it, it really was to, to make it something that was like nothing out there in the world, but also to really fit this new audience that never rode an e-bike before, right? We really saw that we needed and we wanted more sort of design freedom to build that, right? And also new design capacity for that. So before we were very sort of limited to do what we wanted to do and sort of structurally we moved away from that. And so when I started, it was first of all a very small team. I think we were only three or four people together. So it was at the same time, it was sort of building the team. So getting the right capabilities in-house. So not only from a design point of view, so of course industrial designers, but also experienced designers, software engineers in-house, firmware engineers, and also, and then really starting to build it up from the core. So that's basically looking at all the manufacturing, all the facilities that we could use, like traveling a lot, and really see how we can leverage that and with that then build something new as well. Because the, the one thing that I remember talking to Tease about, because I interviewed him as well on the podcast, I've had Taco on a couple of times, mm-hmm. and the one with Tease was probably one of my favorites just because we so rarely talk about design mm-hmm. for manufacturing, right? And that was certainly Tease's point that, you know, in the early days, especially with the bikes that you've built, you were really taking a lot of componentry off the shelf and then you designed, you said, no, no, over time we actually want to make as much of this ourselves as possible. And that was a really kind of key. So at this point, what, the bike is 95% proprietary or 90% yeah, I think, proprietary? I think, I think more even. So it's, it's really, yeah. indeed, we moved from all the way back in the days where you move from just a couple of components that makes basically your product unique towards what we are now where everything is unique to off. Uh, so mm. every single part you ideate upon, you, you design, you engineer, you detail it completely out, test it, you make the jigs to test. And of course, at the same time, you sometimes design the factory and the equipment around that. Yeah, all the way towards the customer. And that's also like, yeah, we take care of the shipment where possible, but also the unpacking experience, the mm. e-commerce experience, like everything. And it's not always that we want to do that necessarily, but... Most of the times we end up doing that because we believe in doing it in a way that that doesn't exist yet. 
then we have to do it ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah, so it kind of went gradually and it, it, it was never a sort of a goal in itself. Yeah. So you've got 2016, you've got the S1 and the first electrified bike. Then there was the S2, then there was sort of the S3. Because that story was kind of blew me away. I think the first time I interviewed Taco, it was like just before the S3 launched. And, oh, no, no, I think it was still when they had the S2, and but the S3 was coming. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, between the S1 and the S2, there was obviously a good level of improvement. But then the S3 really kind of that went totally bananas. Like, you guys weren't really expecting that as far as I understood in terms of where the company ended up getting to. No, we were hoping, of course. We were hoping, but you never get it for free, sort of. Right? You never know up front when that really happens. Yeah. Totally. But take me through the design journey for you between the S1, the S2, the S3, and now where you've got to with the S5. Yeah, so from basically from the S1, it was an enormous step towards like integrating the tech. So a new technology setup, which was basically better for online sales as well. So that's like an easy and simplifying the buying journey of the customer as well. So mm. in a way it was the key things were, for example, that it needed to be remotely serviceable as much as possible with being able to service like the cartridge, as we call it, so all the electronics that's in the top tube. So that was a key thing. Also simplifying the models, simplifying the colors. So we really tried to carve that out for the customer already. So that basically was the S2. And also, of course, bringing real new innovations like the kick lock. So to simplify and having the alarm in there so that the bike could really sort of take care of itself in the city and, and really taking those barriers sort of away for the customer. Then towards the S3, it was yeah more preparing for mass production in that. Again, bringing some new innovations for the rider as well. So for example, we brought then like automatic shifting and a more powerful motor. So those were really key things of the S3. So the S2 didn't have automatic shifting? The S2 had like two gear shifting, yeah, two gears, yeah. but like in a manual way. So like a yeah, yeah. Arch. And the S3 had four speed shifting automatic. Yep. So that works with like electronic shifting. Yes. So really, it was an enormous step up from like the riding behavior for the customer. And now we're at the SNA5, so that's the recently introduced model. And there, the yeah, the main thing was to to reach like a new target audience, and then really trying to design around the product being more accessible for for a user that never rode an e-bike before. Because we see, of course, we took the tech direction, right? So real new innovations like kick locks, like shifters, like alarms and anti-theft systems. But that also comes with a bit of complexity. And what we really try to do this time is to sort of simplify that and make it more accessible for people. And you can see that, for example, coming back in new things like the display that we had before in the top tube, which was really complex, but really showing sort of numbers and data. Mm -hmm. We try to simplify that more. So for everyone that's never rode a Vamov, yeah, you can jump on it, ride it. And there are sort of two simple LED rings on the handlebar and they sort of show you just what you need. So it just gives you the information that is needed for a basic ride, like battery level and sort of the power level you're at, a kind of a sort of feeling of speed, but that's it. Yeah, for the more experienced users there, we took the direction to, for example, put the app more forward in that. Yeah, because that was the big change that I could see with the unveiling of this bike is that you kind of adopted, and forgive me not to say that you're copying your competitors, but Cowboy has had this for the last little while, which, you know, you can put the app right on the handlebars and that, but that the app itself is the kind of the screen, the sort of interaction when you're riding, it, it allows you to 
think about the other things as well things like routing and all that sort of stuff which is the sense that i get with this one too is that you've just said look you you're always going to be limited with with whatever hardware you have for trying to put something on the bike it's not going to last as long as or be easy enough to kind of put in a proper touchscreen or lcd that's going to be big enough to kind of convey all that information so let's just let people use their phones for this which i understand i think it's a smart play it's actually interesting horace our co-host for the podcast has a thesis that these bikes will end up as computing platforms and i've always argued that i think that the computing platform will be our phone they will just connect to the bike or to the Ah. Yeah. over time yeah interesting thought yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah well it's, i'm kind of curious do you think about these bikes as being mobile computers you know when you think about the design do you think of them uh, as yeah we platform? do like it, it kind of is like a computing platform so the way we approach this is really from the technology side so if you see what's sort of inside the the top tube now of a vamo yeah it's it's pretty detailed uh, computer actually pretty heavy we also strongly believe sort of the bike being the data driver behind this. That's also what makes us different than the rest, that the data, it's driven by the bike, so the speed, but it's also other sensors that we have on there, for example, air measurement sensor. So we really believe in the bike sort of being the gateway for that. Mm. I'm super surprised if that's the case, the decision on your side to not include a camera. There's a guy, Ryan Johnson, who has probably the largest e-bike collection in the that I know of in the US. The guy runs a, a company called Cul-de-Sac. We're gonna, we've got a podcast with him coming out very soon. And his point to me when I said I was interviewing you was, ask why they haven't put a camera in it. There's lots of things you can do with cameras that would make the bike it's, it's, really it's useful. It's kind of a difficult decision to ask, like, what's not on it? There's so many things that are not on it. <laughs> but no, it's, it's yes. definitely something yeah. that, that we always play around with. But you always have to sort of focus on sort of the key accessibility for everyone. And we try to find a balance between sort of what is the right for the majority of the users, right? And also to keep it, and of course, that it can take care of itself in the city. And I'm Mm. not sure if that is something we would put on every bike, but it's definitely an interesting space to explore. I feel like you've just revealed that there will be a camera on the 5, but you know, or the V, whatever it's called, the Van Move V. But yeah, I hear you. Yeah, yeah. So take me through the other parts of that bike as well. Yeah, so the, the first one is like the very prominent one is like the Halo Ring interface, yes. right? So that, that that's really designed to sort of give you like immediate and also like an intuitive way of, of giving feedback on like speed and also boost and battery level, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the other one. Like I said, the rest is sort of split for the more experienced and in-depth data stuff. It's more on your phone. Yep. For the rest, a big thing is like the complete tech system inside is revamped. It's, it's a new battery that has a new type of cell inside. Then we have the core system that drives the connectivity, but also the motor, for example, that's completely redesigned. Mm-hmm. It's redesigned in a way we can service it, the way we can service it remotely. But for example, it also has new chipsets. So it has one is it has LTE M connectivity, but it also has a GPS inside mm-hmm. and it has an updated chipset for driving the motor. So it's really a completely the new tech system driving that bike. And you also feel that coming back in the way the whole system works together Mm. so that's another thing like the motor is re-engineered it has a bit more torque but also especially you notice that of course uphill but it can also sustain this torque longer than the previous bike yeah also the sound is improved it's more silent yeah and other tech stuff that we have on there like the kick lock it's it's re-engineered before you had to sort of move the bike to unlock it yeah that's now simplified so it's more accessible for everyone to unlock it so basically when you approach it and move the bike it just pops out yeah so that's another one that makes it more accessible and also the shifter 
yeah, that, that's sort of the whole tech system. And then yeah. one of the key things is a thing called like a torque sensor inside. And that really measures your rider's input and then translates that based on that, the motor power, the riding behavior. Yeah. That's different than how we did that before. We've experimented with that in the Japanese market already, but we're now doing that for everyone. Mm. And the real advantage is that we can drive a lot more detailed and refined the way we sort of steer the motor control and the shifting based on that. So it sounds like a lot of those are just, you know, like incremental refinements. Like, I mean, I have an Apple laptop that looks the same as my Apple laptop that I bought in 2014, you know, but there's all these little refinements yeah. that over time have made it just a little little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. And, 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 you know, it's a delight to use. So I assume we're kind of in the same boat with this in terms of how the A5 and the S5 are. The one thing, yeah. you know, I spend a little bit of time on Reddit, on the Venmo forums, and there were a number of people who, when the bike was released, were like, wait a second, this costs more, it's heavier. This feels like a downgrade from the S3. But, you know, as you talk through it, it's sort of like, oh, you know, they're all refinements. When you are thinking about it between the S3 <laughs> And, and where you've got to now with the A5 and the S5. Is that a reality of the world that's a little bit harder, it's harder to manufacture, it's trickier and all that sort of stuff. So this is just the streamlining of that process to make a bike that works for the masses? No, this is really like, and it's it's hard to see from the outside, but this is really when you experience the bike when you ride it. Mm. The step we make now from S3 to S5, it's really as big of a step that we make from S1 S2. Oh, wow. okay. And I think it's hard to see maybe from pictures or videos, but every single piece is redesigned. So from the frame, like every single detail of the frame, from the dropout, from the extrusions of the tube, from the paint layer on top and the technology we use from the grips, I can go on and on. Yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah, really, yeah. I don't think any single part is the same from the S3. So it's and a step up of all these parts in quality. And you see that also coming back in the price. It's an enormous step. But you'll see that it will come more clear, I think, also when the majority of test rides start to happen in the next weeks to months. Yeah. Well, I do want to do a, a shout out because we are going to have the first public test rides, should you want to come and experience them, at Micromobility Europe, June 1st and 2nd in Amsterdam. We're very excited for this. We'll have Taco up on stage talking about these bikes, but you'll also be able to experience them should you want to check them out. Apologies. Have to uh, include that little shout out. Cool. Well, look, yeah, I hear you about all of these details. I mean, I think one of the things I've always admired about Van Mouth has been the, I mean, it's been the most striking design right since the get-go. And I think what you've managed to do over time, I've only ridden the S2. I haven't had a chance to ride the S3. COVID struck a blade through that plan because I wasn't able to get overseas and you know, ship them to New Zealand. But I am really excited to see how you can mate the really good looking and striking design with a really nice user experience. That the bike itself feels as good as the design makes it look. And I think that that's one of those things of, certainly with the S2, I was a little bit disappointed. I felt it was underpowered. Like I was trying to ride it up a hill in San Francisco and was like, I'm a big lad. It wasn't, yeah, it didn't, didn't have the power to like pull me up the hill and going like, it looks amazing. I just wanted to like satisfy that. I, I really wanted yeah. to get there in terms of performing, doing everything it needs to be able to do, but still looking beautiful. I think as I've kind of mentioned, you know, design permeates everything you do. I think there's lots of stuff that we probably don't know about how design shows up for you. Can you take me through what would the average person not know about design with you? Oh, there's of course a lot, <laughs> a lot that people don't know. I think it's in the way we work at Vamov mm. and the way sort of design is, is integrated in every single bit that we do. So 
again, on in one end is, is that we don't have a big industrial design team, for example. It's only five to 10 people. But it's also, we work in a very, very integrated way. All the disciplines are part of the development group. So, for example, software development, electronic development, mechanical engineering, also experienced designers, but also even like the backend developers for the databases, etc. Like everything is part of the design group. Mm. And that makes also everyone sort of a designer in, in VAMOV. And in every step of the process, we sort of keep thinking about ideating. We keep flexible in the way we approach it. And that also means that even in like the last steps, right, in production and everyone, like everywhere designers are involved. Mm. And I think that's something that is really special at our place. Mm. Yeah, you also see that coming back in something like the, the TV on the on the box is something we've we've done before, like very long time back. But it's an example of that. Like with, with everywhere in the company, we give a lot of freedom for being creative and solving like problems in a very smart way. Yeah. To give context on that, there was an issue with the bikes when they were being shipped that they were getting damaged in their boxes. And so it was a design choice to put a TV on the outside of the box because it turns out that if you put a TV on the outside of the box, people think it's a TV and then they yeah, move it true. in a fragile way. And so... Yeah, like other things were that, like, for example, in the user testing that we did for some of the boxes that we ship, right, we asked the user to assemble the front wheel, which is something that's very, it's never easy for someone that never saw a bike before, right? And of course, from a design point of view, we try to simplify it as much as possible. But at a point, still a user has to sort of do that and cope with that. So something that we did was also like include a party horn in the packaging. I'm not sure if you saw that online. I did, actually. I'd completely forgotten about that, but I do love that yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like the reasoning behind it was is that, yeah, like like some people said, oh, you can't ask that from customers, right? Then we said like, but then at least when you, once you did that, right, you, you need to celebrate and you need to celebrate your purchase and that really, uh, so, and then there is also space to do that, right? If you see something like that, then we can also also really make it happen and there, there are many many other examples in the company to make that happen that's pretty cool about how we approach it actually yeah i mean i do love the joyousness of it the other thing i was also thinking of that comes to front of mind as well was when you had your ad that you did your marketing ad in france that managed to get you banned yeah. you know and it was like wait a second we're just talking about how a bike is sexy compared to a car but you know do you want to tell that story of i mean i i think it comes through into all of it and in terms of stacking up as a brand that just feels really fun and exciting. yeah I, I don't know all the details actually of that but what i know from it is that we made a beautiful commercial right to show that it was like a melting car from what i can remember yeah and I think suddenly it got banned from French TV. It was offensive for, for like the car makers, but it got more attention to it than that everyone probably wanted with that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, old, they call it the Streisand effect, the Barbara yeah, Streisand yes. effect from the time she complained about, I mean, uh, the fact that I'm even talking about Barbara Streisand, she complained that people were going on her beach in California and tried to sue them. And now it became like this massive thing. Yeah. And now I talk about Barbara Streisand and the fact that she <laughs> drew attention to it. Anyhow, yeah, yeah, I, I loved it. It was great. It was great marketing on your side, so. Yeah, and like these examples, it's not that these things are strategically thought out or anything, like not at all. I think it's in, in many ways also the the sort of atmosphere in the company and like the people we have together. And that, that also sometimes brings up a lot of creativity in every angle of the company. Yeah. But it's also somehow we have a lot of these things happening on the side and then we quickly need to sort of cope with that. And also that sometimes creates an angle that is very funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I do. I mean, I love the humor. I love it. It's, it's, it's great. One, one thing I do have to ask is like, 
a lot of those feel like they were maybe created in a, the early days of Van Murf. It was like, yeah, you're, you're struggling with funding. You're kind of feeling like you're going to die all the time. You didn't have the capital that you have now. Does that kind of end up creating a sense of like a little bit more up against it? So we really have to kind of think of creative solutions out of this. And then has that changed since you've obviously got quite a bit more funding? Because I mean, the, the funding rounds that you've collected more recently have been very amazing and quite impressive. Yeah, of course it changes, right? Because the, the company gets bigger and you also need a change about that. You, mm. you cannot stay a startup forever. So we're very conscious of that. But yeah, it's something like we're very much built and used to work also from a background where you don't have all the resources that you can get. So you, you need to be smart and you need to be creative and find ways to get your product to the market or to work with manufacturers that see sort of the same thing as you see. And I think, yeah, like in the early days, we of course attracted also a lot of people who were really good in that as well. And luckily all these, like many of these people, and I think the majority of these people are still around. Mm. Oh yes, we are growing as a company, but also while we grow, everyone who's sort of on board, they also get a bit of that. Yeah. The way I see it, it's very deep in the culture of Amov, that creativity and also the fun and being able sometimes to do things with nothing. So that, that's very deep in who we are. But of course, it's changing, but not in a bad way. The yeah, way I see yeah. it. No. Growing up, coming a bit more sophisticated in your humor, one hopes. No. Uh, yeah. So, hey, look, the pivot to proper integration. One of the things that I kind of really noted when you came out with the A5 and the S5 was that it uses the phone. And we've kind of mentioned this already, but I, I am kind of curious how you see it integrating with the overall experience of owning the bike now. Do you expect everybody to use the phone or obviously you also don't because you design the bike in a way that doesn't require it but what do you think it adds to the experience yeah so in a way it makes a bit of a split for a different type of user right so the person that uses the phone it's really there to see more of the data that's being generated by the bike but really things like for example the speed or the distance of your ride but we also see like actually the majority of the people right that we reach with famov they never rode an e-bike before and mm. so it's the first time they tried it and it, as you can imagine it's a, it's a pretty scary thing right and we really try to simplify that and to not make it something scary to jump on you see that coming back in of course the design of the bike the way it looks the way it feels the way we do an effort to sort of integrate things that's all for this new type of audience to feel comfortable jumping on it uh, you see that coming back in the sort of frame shape of the a5 so that you can easily jump on it yeah this is the smaller one yeah and that, that also means that, that that some of the more in-depth functionalities that we choose to use the app for that so the way i see it is that you can still use it for example in the app we also use it for unlocking right you can use it for unlocking your bike opening the kick lock but it's better if you sort of simplify it so you can keep your phone in your pocket and it just works via Bluetooth, it recognizes you, and then by one hit of the button, it opens, right? So there's always this sort of way for someone that doesn't necessarily like that complexity. But we do, of course, also want to facilitate the group of people who really likes to see more data of their rights, to compare their rights data with the community. So that's something that we facilitate there. Or that you can see what is average in your city, for example, how we change that city compared to another city. So we really try to put in the data also we a bit in context there. And are you planning on doing a social feature as well? Like, can I, will I be able to see hey, Dave down the road's ridden heaps on his bike and I'm not quite riding as much and maybe I should get out and not be such a, you know, lout? 
That, that would be really cool. So if it's Dave, then we definitely bring that. Feature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of possibilities there, but we definitely will look at the community piece a lot more than before. And that's something we saw like more than a year ago with, of course, bringing like more data of your rights. Mm. And again, not, not in a way that, for example, Strava does it, but in a way that really fits for both and that, that translates it for the user in a way that it benefits them. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. I'm conscious we, we're starting to get up a little bit going on time. So there's one final question that I have for you, which is what are you excited about in micromobility design overall? Like, or not even micromobility design, but you know, just for the reasons that I've kind of alluded to, I think what you do is beautiful. I think you're probably one of the like companies that I look to in terms of just really nailing the product in this space. And I'm just curious, one, where you take your inspiration from and two, what you're excited about in this space too. Yeah, it's always a hard question for me. Like I hardly look at at competitors or at, let's say in the e-bike space then. What I am really excited about is like the change, the change that we see in the cities. It's, it's something we saw, of course, years ago in cities like Amsterdam, mm. but you really see that now changing everywhere. You see, for example, in Paris, you see them, the cities puzzling with the space they have and not saying that e-bikes are the only solution, of course, but you see that the rules are changing for what vehicles they allow for the road and, and how that changes in the city center. So I'm really excited to see that change and also to work for a brand and a product that drives that change. That's one. Mm -hmm. I think what I'm also excited about is sort of to change the way products are produced mm. and for example where one of the examples is arrival i think which it's sort of like a car manufacturer but when you look at their story it's really about the way they manufacture and how they do that in one location mm. not with mega factories but more with like smaller factories and, and doing it in a way where you can sort of locally scale that and that's also pretty cool to to look at it and and to see where you can smartly use materials that you can easily scale that are of course environmental friendly and that you can use like smart ways to manufacture that. Yeah. I think that that's not necessarily related to, I think, the micro mobility space, but it's definitely interesting, I think, for the micro mobility space because things are made for cities, right? So why not make the products in a way where it's right next to the city or in, even in the city, right? That's also definitely something I personally find super interesting to look at, like how you can combine the opportunity in the cities with that. Yep. No, I think your point around that is, is, is super valid. One of the big things we've been excited about in micromobility has been the fact that these are really kind of relatively small and modular, relatively, not all like that, but that it does allow for those smaller production facilities that aren't a $2 billion or $3 billion gigafactory, but actually that you can start to build things in smaller production runs and you get more interesting innovations and iterations because you have the you don't have giant big production runs in order to be able to pay off all the development of one yeah, thing you know yeah. you just get you get more experimentation yeah and the last yeah maybe to mention a last completely different one but yeah what, what is also really excited is to see that we sort of uh, almost like the customer we almost dreamed of, like trying to get new people on bikes. And, mm. and we really see that that is now happening the last years and that more and more people are that never rode a bike before. They're, they're jumping on bikes now as well and choosing it as an alternative. And that's, yeah, that's just cool to see. That's something we've believed in already for a very, very long time, that that's happening. It's growing rapidly. That's really cool. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, well, look, I really appreciate your time, Job. This has been so interesting. Thanks. And I would love everyone's feedback on this episode as well. Feel free to hit us up on Twitter. Job, if folks wanted to track you down, are you on Twitter? Not that I know of, no. Okay. <laughs> 
All right. Well, I'm on Twitter, Oliver Bruce, but also Micromobility Co. Would love to hear from you. Yeah, but folks do want to get in touch with you or say hi or anything like that. What's the best way to reach you? Yeah, I think uh, it's very old-fashioned. I think it's email. Okay. What's your email? <laughs> it's job at vermov.com. Yeah. Oh, don't confuse it with jobs at vermov. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, do, I was trying to work out if I was if I was to email you, would I get the just general generic jobs email? But actually, it would be jobs, not job. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Hey, well, thank you again for your time. And I'm really looking forward to getting together in Amsterdam and, and being able to hang out and, and do some things in person. It feels very novel. I'm also really looking yeah. forward to checking out this A5 and S5. They're going to be we'll, amazing. We'll prepare a bike for you. Oh, yeah. marvellous. Uh, marvellous. Oh, I can't wait. Okay. Looking forward to that as well. Yeah, super. All right. Well, um, yeah, we'll see you soon. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for having me.